So um, thanks to Heath, to the Kern Foundation again for um, sponsoring this kind of event. Uh, for Chris Hlavacek, is, is that my right? Um, uh, Justin Orr for um, really professional welcoming in, um, and setting us up in this beautiful place to have this time together. <clears throat> As I begin this paper, um, I'll give you just a minute of introduction to how it came about. I'm working right now at Chesterton House at Cornell on um, a grant funded by the Lilly Endowment um, focused on um, leadership uh, studies in, in theological education and vocation and leadership. So the, the question of vocation and, and um, as our culture and our economy changes so quickly, what does it mean for Christians to be called into work in the world? I was at a conference in October with a leader in this program over the last several decades, and we had read an essay in which there were 40 books on vocation reviewed from the last couple of, of decades. And then we had a book table out with more books. And as I looked around my own training, I just asked this, um, one of this, this gentleman next to me, who was an editor of several of the volumes, do you have any books or essays by biblical scholars? And it wasn't a critique, it was just a question. I mean, people I naturally would know, um, I'm, not, I'm not seeing much of that contribution here. And he paused for a moment and came back to me about five minutes later and said, no. Nothing that he, could, he and I could think of. And um, so to me, this is the beginning of filling in that space and beginning to think about um, kind of a rigorous uh, taking of the biblical narrative, the biblical um, materials, and asking about um, work and vocation. <clears throat> Setting the stage. A timorous old man was feeding a donkey in a meadow. And frightened by a sudden alarm of the enemy, he tried to persuade the donkey to flee, lest they be taken prisoner. But the donkey leisurely replied, Pray, do you suppose that the conqueror will place more of a burden on me? The old man said, No. Then what matters it to me so long as I have to carry my burdens? Whom I serve? Phaedrus, the fabulist, composed this fable sometime around 5 A.D., and fables about work and slavery like this date to before Phaedrus and even before Aesop, 500 years earlier. This kind of folklore provided a kind of chatter among the poor and oppressed classes, giving them a sense of camaraderie and an ability to cope with the burdens of life. Like Nathan's parable to David, such fables also served to create something of a gently coded appeal to those in authority. The transfer of real events to the imaginary world made the criticism seem less personal and more likely to be heard. Fast forward 2,000 years to an article entitled In the Name of Love by Mia Tokamitsu in Slate Magazine, 2014. Tokamitsu, who has a PhD in art history from the University of Pennsylvania, describes the emerging American generation as a people whose unofficial work mantra is, do what you love. D-W-Y-L. This mantra has been inspired by popular figures that Tokamitsu describes as peddlers of positivity, such as Oprah Winfrey and Steve Jobs, the late founder of Apple. Listen to this representative advice from Jobs to the graduating class at Stanford in 2005. You've got to find what you love, and that is true for your work as it is for your lovers. Your work is going to fill a large part of your life and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work. And the only way to do great work is to love what you do. 
Tokamitsu notices that the words you and your occurred eight times in these four short sentences. The individual and the individual's happiness undergird the whole of Job's vision. And yet, Tokamitsu astutely observes, Job's alighted, quote, Job's alighted the labor of untold thousands of Apple's factories, conveniently hidden from sight on the other side of the planet, the very labor that allowed Jobs to actualize his love, end quote. She continues, the problem is that do what you love leads not to salvation, but to the devaluation of actual work, including the very work it pretends to elevate, and more importantly, the dehumanization of the vast majority of laborers by keeping us focused on ourselves and our individual happiness, do what you love distracts us from the working conditions of others while validating our own choices and relieving us from the obligations to all who labor, whether or not they love it. In ignoring most of the work and reclassifying the rest as love, do what you love may be the most elegant anti-worker ideology around. End quote. It should not be hard to recognize the obvious similarities between Phaedrus and Tokamitsu, they describe the stark realities of work. Yet it's the great historical distance between these two authors that should give us pause. That is to say, the whole of our human history can be characterized as most people doing work they do not choose and do not love, to earn less money than they deserve or need. In 2,000 years of progress and development since Phaedrus, we've made little ground in eliminating these inequalities and injustices at work. At the most, we have moved the suffering around, in the West, mostly away from us. And I belabor this point because any discussion of a Christian theology of vocation must begin with these realities and their causes fully in view. Part two, it's the main part of this paper, a Christian vocation and the two sacred callings. In this paper, I am not anxious to distinguish work from calling or vocation. I think such distinctions can be helpful, but it does not bear heavily on my argument. In fact, in some ways, I seek to hold these two together under a larger umbrella of a biblical anthropology of work. Turning to the history of Christian thought on work and vocation, we can identify the Reformation era as the time when we first recognized two dimensions to our Christian calling. The Catholic Church, incidentally, has adopted something very close to this view in the last century. In any case, our primary calling is to follow Christ, to be children of God, disciples, participants in the church, evangelists. All of us share this call. In our secondary callings, we are makers of culture. We are teachers, artists, store clerks, farmers, politicians, doctors, nurses, scientists, tradespeople, parents, pastors, and more. Distinguishing between these two callings helps us think critically and imaginatively about the breadth of human action in the world. But the distinction also reveals a tragic disassociation between these two callings that started at the fall. Human beings, as the Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann has said, ceased to be priests of the world at that time. Unquote. We lost the sacramental presence of God in the basic acts of daily life. And so our worship and our work are constantly being severed apart. Whatever metaphor we choose for human work and vocation, be it stewardship or co-creation or creation care, 
My aim today is to suggest that above all, our work should be thought of as holy wisdom, the work of skilled priests. A biblical theology of work and vocation, after all, not only imagines these two vocations inseparably bound together, but is forming a cord that becomes our God-given means to address the inequalities and injustices that pervade the modern world of work, notably the great gap between the laborers and the do-it-you-lovers. What we do on Sunday worship and on our knees at home is organically bound up with what we do Monday to Saturday, 9 to 5. Our work in the world is sacred. Said differently, a biblical theology of vocation leads to nothing less than thinking of vocation as consecrated wisdom, a sacred attending to the creation around us. I'll use the following five tenets to try and make this point clear. Tenet one. Sacred wisdom. Work at its bare essence is making something of the world, and wisdom is the means we are given to carry out this task. In making this point, I'm reflecting on the vision of work in Genesis 1, on the first side of your handout. I assume that most of us are aware of this two-panel reading of the famous chapter in Genesis, an interpretation that goes back to the 18th century, if not earlier. According to this reading, God created a region in days 1 to 3, that is, panel 1, and then its occupants on days 4 to 6, panel 2. Specifically, God made the expanse on day 1 and filled it with light bearers on day 4, the waters on day 2, and its occupants of teeming animals on day 5, and the land on day 3, and land creatures on day 6. The overall image of creation here is not just one of making things in sequence, but that of a visionary artisan making things and then wisely provisioning them in a way that advances the flourishing in the world. Plainly stated, God makes things that fit his purpose of fruitfulness and multiplication. And so his creatures are beckoned to be fruitful and multiply, to continue making the stuff of the world in ways that bring flourishing and life and that counters decay and death. Throughout the Bible, we find this vocational process repeatedly labeled as wisdom. We see this implicitly in Exodus 28 to 36, where God directs the building of the tabernacle, calling Bezalel a holy ab, and the anonymous women weavers of goat's hair, all of them endowed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Once these wise craftsmen and craftswomen had built the tabernacle, that is the region, God's presence, the occupant fills the sanctuary. This is the place on earth most fit for him, and the end result of his presence is that it brings life and blessing to Israel. The same description accompanies the building of the temple in Solomon's house in 1 Kings 7 and 2 Chronicles 9. The book of Proverbs, of course, is explicit in calling this wisdom, which is most clear when we read Proverbs 3, 19 to 20, alongside 14, 1, and 24, 3, and 4, on the second side of your handout. Proverbs 3 describes Yahweh founding and establishing the world by wisdom and provisioning it with waters by knowledge. Panel 1 and panel 2 are here readily apparent. So also the wisest of women in chapter 14 and the men in chapter 24 
are given wisdom and knowledge to build houses by wisdom and provision them by knowledge. Now to understand why I label this process sacred, we turn to tenet two, sacred place. In our ancient wisdom literature, the house is a common metaphor for human life, our career and home life all wrapped into one. Wisdom is the means by which we are meant to live that life. And so we come away from Genesis and Proverbs, not to mention Psalms, Job and Colossians, etc., thinking of wisdom as the practical skill of making a world in sync with the way God made the world himself. And in the same way as the traveling tabernacle, this vocation of ours is tied to place. Furthermore, like the tabernacle, the human house is sacred. I draw our attention here to Mircea Eliade's sacred, uh, classic work, The Sacred and the Profane. Eliad, a professor of history at the University of Chicago, found that all cultures come face to face with the fact that the physical geography of the world around us has an overwhelming sense of sameness or profaneness or homogeneity. The places where we live, work, and travel appear to us as an endless collection of blandness, principally because space is devoid of any sense of sacredness. The sameness about place nags at us existentially and reminds, of, reminds us of our finite and our mortal nature. Eliade's study also demonstrates that human cultures in every age have sought in a similar ways to break up this sameness and profaneness. That is to connect our mundane work and lives to sacred things. Even non-religious cultures share this impulse, going about setting up monuments and parks, experimenting in architecture, and naming streets. Anything to oppose or resist the sameness of space. The point for religious believers especially is not just to break up the monotony of place, but to make the sacred eternal present in place. And to do this work of making, of making divinity present, humans must imitate in the way we build our houses or live our lives. This is the model we have already seen in Proverbs. Only Eliad illumines the sacred nature of it for us. Quote, The ritual by which a man constructs a sacred space is efficacious in the measure in which it reproduces the work of the gods. And so it is in Genesis. In his book, The Liberating Image, a study of our being made in the image of God, Richard Middleton describes this same idea in this way. The associations between the spirit and wisdom and power are thus quite clear and suggest that human rule and subduing of the earth in Genesis 1 involves an element of artful discernment in the service of the cultural shaping and transformation of the world. In imitation of God's wise acts of ordering and crafting what was originally formness into hospitable and cosmic structure. The Orthodox theologian again, Alexander Schmemann, reinforces this deeply sacred nature of our human calling. Quote, the church itself is a liturgia, a ministry, a calling to act in this world after the fashion of Christ, to bear testimony to him and to his kingdom, end quote. Notice that in Middleton's quote above, he describes our human vocation as a transformation of the world around us, which makes the chaos habitable, formed. This idea of imitating God might make the actual practice seem too easy, but transformation requires wisdom 
discernment. And as we know from Proverbs, the power and seductive forces of folly always oppose wisdom. And so our work must proceed in power to resist, in prayer, to resist the power of folly. Here, think for a moment about the Spanish and Port- Portuguese conquistadors who established new territories by erecting Christian crosses on the landscape. The crosses served to consecrate the territories as new creation in the name of Jesus. On the one hand, these explorers understood the Christian calling to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth with the power and presence of the gospel, as Luke records Jesus' words in Acts 1.8. But the error of this early colonial worldview was that it allowed its Christian vocation of discipleship to be severed away from our vocations in the world. And so they failed to translate the sacredness of the cross into the proper means to transform the world around them. Their crosses became markers for the domination and oppression of weaker nations. They thought in terms of ownership of the land and its people, more than responsibility to land and people. Said another way, Jesus did not go about the countryside setting up little temples and synagogues. He went about preaching and performing good works alongside his faithful worship in the temple and the synagogue. We must be clear, therefore, that the cross and our churches are sacred symbols of the redemptive and consecrating work of God performed to restore flourishing to a fallen world, forgiving, healing, feeding, and welcoming the outcast. But they are also places in which we symbolize the places in which we live day to day, in the way we build parks and neighborhoods, how we zone our cities to minimize gentrification and maximize a more even distribution of social classes, racial groups, and wealth. Our churches, therefore, consecrate the redeeming work we do in the places where the weak, the underprivileged, the needy, and marginalized of the world live. Tenet three, sacred time. In the same way as place, our human experience of time is plagued by a sense of homogeneity and sameness. This thing that seems so real to us in the moment only dissolves into the past and is no more. And so it should come as no surprise that the temple building and rituals of place in the Bible are always situated within rituals related to time. These rituals, in turn, consecrate work in its second dimension. Before considering these rituals, it is important first to be reminded of the rituals of time in our modern secular culture. In a piece entitled Waiting for the Weekend in the Atlantic in 1991, Witold Rubzinski tracks the historical transformation from Sabbath to the end of the week to the weekend, with a hyphen, to the weekend, all caps, a period of two days apart from work. Over the course of several centuries, our culture moved gradually from working until the Lord's Day to working until the weekend to everybody working for the weekend. To quote the title of Loverboy's song, top 10 hit from 1981. Some of us might have owned that album. Rybzinski argues that this process has made for an ironic shift in which we've become equally, if not more, devoted to our hobbies than our weekday work. People used to play tennis and golf. Now we work on our backhand and our putting. Jogging has given way to road races, whose distances we plaster on the bumpers of our cars 
to tell everyone how serious we are about this stuff. Point scoring, rules, race times all matter intensely on the weekend. The word amateur, which means lover, has ceased to be a compliment. For we pursue our sport like professionals, paying top dollar for their equipment. And we drag our kids into it at earlier and earlier ages. This weekend that once gave us freedom now enslaves most of us. The shift in our approach to time has in reality only exchanged one sacred for another. The Lord's Sabbath for the deity and thank God it's Friday. Another God, another time. And so it is incumbent upon us to think critically about time in its sacredness. And it should be obvious that God's making the world in seven days, with the days symbolically paired together as we described above, is more about sacred work than a sequence of events in creation, whatever our views of geological history. Recall this command from Exodus 20. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sacred time. From the start of creation, one on every seven days is marked as holy to the Lord. In sacred time, vocations embrace a rest that includes Israelites, slaves, foreigners, animals, and the land. Following the pattern of the Sabbath, the biblical law spells out several related patterns of this sacred rest. A tithe from the fruit of hard work is to be given every year and every three years. In the seventh year, the people are called to observe a Sabbath of release. The stipulations for this release are in Deuteronomy 15, where the rules for canceling debts are described by the words freely, generously, and open-handed. Slaves are to be released and supported liberally. Such provisions enable a slave to be active in the market immediately upon release from service to take up their vocation again. In the 49th year, Israel was to declare a jubilee in which the people rested the land, returned the slaves to their ancestral property, and provided generously for the poor. And finally, there were the annual festivals. Three times each year at the Feast of Passover, Weeks, and Sukkot, all of Israel traveled to a sacred place to observe a feast of seven days in which slaves, Levites, travelers, widows, and orphans were to be included in the festivities. Here it must be emphasized that the law ingrained Israel's secular vocations within the rhythm of sacred time, always linking them into God's redemptive work. In other words, Israel's hard work in their various spheres of life became the means of production of grains and animals to cover guilt, and give thanks to God in worship, but simultaneously to replenish and renew what had become weak and vulnerable in the community. Without wise work Sunday to Friday, the religious and the economic life of the nation would falter. And so without sacred time, work within vocations would be nothing more than self-serving. <coughs> this brings us to tenet four, sacred community. 
Sacred time and sacred place come together in the worshiping and working community. In his posthumously published novel, The Pale King, David Foster Wallace wrote a chapter depicting four IRS agents stuck in an elevator for several hours, discussing the broader implications of their work and why, at a philosophical level, they spend so much time making sure they collect taxes. Early in the conversation, a veteran of the agency, Mr. Glenn Denning, turns the conversation to civics, the younger employees having not been required to study the subject in school. Civics, Glenn Denning says, is the branch of political science that concerns itself with, quote, citizenship and the rights and duties of U.S. citizens, end quote. This notion of civics was simply assumed by America's founding fathers, whom Glenn Denning describes as selfless heroes. They assumed their descendants would be like them, rational, honorable, civic-minded, men with at least as much concern for the common good as for personal advantage. Glenn Denning goes on to contrast how, quote, prescient and far-sighted the fathers were in constructing the the checks and balances in the branches of government, and yet naive in their belief in the civic virtue of the common people. The founding fathers assumed that the people would always consider themselves to be a part of government, and thus responsible for the health of the nation and its people. Today, Glenn Denning says, quote, something queer is going on in terms of civics and selfishness in this country, the source of which is to be found in the corporations. He goes on, but the whole dark genius of corporations is that they allow for individual reward without individual obligation. The workers' obligations are to the executives, the executives to the CEO, the CEO to the board, the board to the shareholders, and the shareholders are the ones whom the custom, and, and the shareholders to the customers, who are also the customers that the corporation will screw over at the earliest opportunity in the name of profit. End quote. There is no corporate moral compass in this system. What my problem is, Glendening continues, is the way it seems that we as individual citizens have adopted the corporate attitude, that our ultimate obligation is to ourselves, that unless it's illegal or the direct practical consequences for ourselves, any activity is okay. End quote. These four trapped elevator patrons come to recognize that we have entered a time of the death of civics. An emphasis on man as the individual and the rights and entitlements of the individual instead of the responsibilities of the individual. Corporations, marketing agencies, and PR firms all create desire and need within us. And these desires feed manic production of consumer goods for us to buy all the while flattering our psychic delusions with which we deflect the horror of personal smallness and transience, enabling the delusion that the individual is at the center of the universe and, quote, the most important thing, that his first responsibility is to his own happiness, end quote. The obvious point is that having begun with the best of intentions, our culture was seduced by the siren songs of freedom, individualism, and consumerism, in the process, we have traded away our traditions of civic duty and responsibility. I commend Wallace's writings to you. My interest in Wallace's critique is in the way it colors the vocational construct 
of sacred wisdom, place, and time I have been describing here. In this construct, Israel's cycles of work, rest, and pilgrimage all serve to connect the nation's economic and vocational life to the sacred in such a way that the system as a whole was reprovisioned or refilled. Just as God provided for the flourishing of the world in Genesis, so that a minute detail of ritual law served to renew creation from the results of calamity, injustice, laziness, and neglect. Here life before God and life in the world go hand in hand. The IRS conversation in the elevator now helps us to see that is the whole, this whole process assumes is that Israel was a sacred community bound together in covenant. Consider the memorable scene when God, after rescuing Israel from slavery and exile in Egypt, called them to receive the law in the shadow of his sacred thundering presence at Sinai. In his introduction to the law, God addresses the nation by its ancestral titles of Jacob and Israel, calling them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. When we pause to dissect this event for a moment, three points call to our attention. First, by naming this people Jacob, Israel, God situates his sacred revelation of the law in history, making human time sacred. The selection of Abraham and his promise to a small and unimpressive clan recalls a family that was afraid, rebellious, and constantly threatened. A family that for most of its history has wandered in search of a sacred home in God's presence. Above all, it is a family that exists because of the love and compassion of God. Two, by calling them a kingdom and a nation, God commissions a whole, united body in covenant with him and with one another. In his memorable work on community and growth, Jean Vanier says, quote, the difference between a community and a group of friends is that in a community we verbalize our mutual belonging and bonding. We announce the goals and spirit that unites us. We recognize that we are responsible for one another. We recognize that this bonding comes from God. It is a gift from God. It is he who has chosen and called us together in a covenant of love and mutual caring. End quote. And three, by naming this community a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, God consecrates this people for holiness, all of them. He reveals his desire to make these people an instrument to bring his sacred redeeming presence through Israel to the surrounding nations of the world. Israel is a community united by its calling to holiness and mission. In his first epistle, Peter shows, cites this, mess prophet, this passage from Exodus to show that the church has taken on Israel's role. In Peter's word, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Again, Vanier elaborates for us, if people come together to care for each other, it is because they feel more or less clearly that as a group they have a common mission. They have been called together by God and have a message of love to transmit to others. When two or three come together in his name, Jesus is present. Community is a sign of this presence. It is a sign of the church. A community which prays and loves is a sign of the resurrection. That is its mission. End quote. 
God's people are bound together in the sacred mutual dependence of the covenant. This means that all Christian work in every particular vocation in the world is constrained with or bound to this covenant structure. Finally, tenet five, sacred patience. We are not the first people in the world to recognize the great social and economic inequalities around us, nor are we the first Christians to want to alleviate injustice and suffering and restore community. Success is limited. And so we are faced with the fact that the challenges before us are immense, the forces of sin and evil are at work, and that we must go forward with patience. This takes us back to the book of Ecclesiastes, which gives us the most exhaustive and one could say candid treatment on work in the Bible. Solomon, or more accurately, Kohelet, the gatherer, the speaker, speaks of toil and work almost 50 times in his short book. Kohelet asserts that toil does not change anything, that the toil of the wise is painful or senseless, that one cannot enjoy the fruits of toil, and that toil is joined to an incomprehensible or unjust world order. All of us have experienced the irksomeness of toil to one degree or another. But what is it that leads Kohelet to such a pessimistic attitude? This question has stymied readers for over two millennia. But most interpreters do agree that two or three major causes are Kohelet's problem are Kohelet's problem with remembrance and hope and his solitary sense of human existence. I'll speak to each of these briefly. First, Kohelet has a problem with remembrance and hope. Again and again, he laments that things will not be remembered, that things are forgotten, that death hangs over us all, that what has been has been and there is nothing new under the sun. Kohelet is struck with a sense of circular time that provides no light beyond the grave. And this makes work futile. Proverbs is typically taken as the sounding board for Ecclesiastes. And while English versions of Proverbs only occasionally mention hope or patience, the book continually commends diligence, hard work, a slow tongue, a cool spirit, a long nose in the Hebrew. A fool puts out money to a stranger, but the wise can earn wealth by daily work with their hands. A hot-headed fool answers at once, but the wise speaks words of prudence and blessing. Proverbs also frequently acknowledges the apparent circularity of life, unexplained suffering, and the inescapable injustices that we find in Ecclesiastes. But Proverbs also assumes that there will be some kind of divine recompense in the end. Not a new heavens and a new earth or a resurrection, but some sense that, despite what the eye sees, God's order and justice will prevail. Do not miss the fact that to be wise requires patience and hope. Patience with our neighbor, patience with the government, patience with one's work, and patience with and hope in God. Kohelet's almost non-existent eschatology leads him to see little long-term meaning in the work we pursue in the world. Kohelet's problem with time is interwoven with his problem of individual isolation. It is a fact that Kohelet uses first-person verbs and first-person pronouns, most of them grammatically unnecessary, 
vastly more often than any other biblical book. As John Patterson has said, Kohelet has eye trouble. It may be that he lived a life plagued by loneliness, fear of rejection, confusion, or that he wanted to warn us against such individualism and egoism, or both. The point is that Kohelet's sense of separation from his community reinforces his sense and the hopelessness of time. If these themes of individualism and a lack of hope and patience seem difficult to connect, consider Paul's opening words to the church at Corinth. I give thanks that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. One could paraphrase this very loosely as, your spiritual gifts, that is your unique, vocational, spiritually given aptitudes and skills, are the God-given means to sustain you as you wait for his glorious appearance. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul states explicitly that these gifts are not for individual distinction, but for the ministry to the one body in Christ. The eye cannot say to the head, I have no need of you. Paul goes on, God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Our vocational gifts are an antidote to division and loneliness. And as we read in the next memorable chapter, the greatest of these gifts is love, which abides with faith and hope. Looking through the lens of Paul's letter, we can see how the isolation and lack of hope in Ecclesiastes fed off of one another, leading Kohelet to despair of life and work. Paul's farewell beckons the church with the word Maranatha, our Lord, come. Having been sent back to their vocational callings, this church like us finds strength in what Kohelet lacked, a resilient hope. God's justice, forgiveness, Truth, mercy, and love, they shall overcome, as Desmond Tutu once said. This is the key to a sacred patience, a holy gathering together as a temple of God to do his works until he comes again. As we conclude, we must, not, we must recognize that although Kohelet in Ecclesiastes lacked patience or a sustained hope, he did not recommend apathy or laziness. His exhortation to enjoy your work all the days of your life, in fact, acts as a serious challenge. In the face of injustice and setbacks and the limits of human understanding, we are meant to labor to find joy in our work because it is a gift from God. Even in Ecclesiastes, work is approached eucharistically, that is, thankfully, sacramentally. Gohalet's long-term vision is muted, true, but this is perhaps what makes his advice for daily perseverance so powerful and strong. Those things that seem so mundane to us, food, work, family, are the marks of assurance that God has a sacred hand in the smallest details of human life. And it is this divine presence, again, that marks work, place, time, and community as sacred. In all of this, we must acknowledge that we will never fix this world through our work, through our wisdom. That is for Jesus to complete when he comes again. But we wait with a holy patience, 
knowing it is soon. Today, the day after the holiday, in his honor, we do well to remember Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s sermon, Our God is Marching On. Dr. King said, However difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long, because truth crushed to the earth will rise again. How long? Not long. How long? Not long. Thank you.